so this morning we come to uh, almost done with the first chapter of Philippians as we begin this, uh, this series here uh, in the new year. And today we're going to see how the Apostle, the Apostle Paul is talking about living and dying and whether he lives, he's going to glorify Jesus and whether he dies, he's going to glorify Jesus in the current uh, scenario that he's in. In, in uh, basically in prison, in a high security prison. So today we'll be looking at Philippians 1, verses 19 through 26. If you are able to, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 1, starting in verse 19, it says, For I know that through your prayers... In the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which... I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus, because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I ask that as we look to your word this morning, that you would bring understanding, Lord, that you would guard me from teaching any error, that you would be with the hearers, or whether here in person or online, so that your word may be understood. Give us a conviction, Lord, of what it means to live for you or to die for you when that day comes, that it will be for your glory. We ask this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. As I was preparing for this, uh, for this topic, for this sermon, I was reminded of a, a story that was told by a kindergarten school, um, Sunday school teacher. And basically gave a lesson on how it is important to have uh, our faith in Christ so that when we die, we can be with him. So towards the end of the lesson, the teacher, in order to encourage the students to consider putting their faith in Christ, she said, so who of you want to go to heaven? You can imagine the kids, you know, me raising their hands. Except for one little boy. Little Tommy said, nah. And the teacher was like, but why? It's like, well, I mean, my parents are waiting for me after service. And like, I don't want to die. And the teacher was like, no, we don't mean right now. We mean like when you die, like Jesus will take you and you'll be with you. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, I'll sign up for that, right? <laughs> so how many times, if we are honest, we even as Christians have had similar thoughts. Like, I want to be with Jesus, but... I mean, not, not now. I'm, I got a lot of things to do. I'm busy, right? I got more important things to take care of. 
Paul Washer has rightly stated that when we are evangelizing, or even when we are talking amongst Christians, the right question is not, do you want to go to heaven? Rather, the right question should be, do you want God? Do you want to know God? And this is certainly how Scripture views the afterlife. Not with a, a yearning of going to a place per se, but being with God, being with Christ. So I have titled today's sermon, Alive But Ready to Die. Alive But Ready to Die. Can any of us say that today I'm alive, but I am ready to die? Again, if we are honest, we may not spiritually be prepared for that. There might be causes that people fight for that they'll say, I will die for this cause, right? And many probably do have that conviction. But we know from Scripture that in order to die well, in order to please God at the time of our death, it is only if we are in Christ, only if we know Jesus. And then we are reminded that, therefore, the life of a Christian, by and large, the life of a Christian is preparation to die. Preparation to meet our Creator. So to recap where we're at here in the book of Philippians, to put some context into our lesson today, Paul is in prison. He perceives that he doesn't have much more time in his life. He has suffered quite a bit. He's been beaten, tortured, imprisoned, shipwrecked, beaten almost to the point of death, persecuted for his faith in Jesus. And when he's writing to the Philippians, he's writing a letter of encouragement. Right? We would, we would think that perhaps he could write a, a complaint letter for them to appreciate how much he's done because he's suffered so much and woe is me. But no. He writes them a letter of encouragement and thanksgiving because of the progress that has been done in the gospel, because of their spiritual growth, because of the love that is growing amongst the brethren there in Philippi. And ultimately, he's encouraged them to be servants. Paul has encouraged them to be servants like he is a servant. And he's also encouraged them to look at the ultimate servant, Jesus. In the previous passage that Pastor Kevin preached last week, he, Paul is talking about how while he's in prison, some have continued to preach the gospel out of goodwill, out of godliness, while others have used that occasion for self-ambition with an intention to afflict Paul in their proclaiming of the gospel. Nevertheless, we see that Paul rejoices. He just said that in, in, in the verse previous to this, in verse 18. And he is not offended. He is not deeply hurt. He literally says, I rejoice because the gospel is being preached and doesn't put much attention in the fact that they are afflicting him. This is a quick reminder. I think I mentioned this at our midweek Bible study, but it's a, it's a quick reminder that one of the signs of maturity in Christ that is visible in our everyday lives is that we are not easily offended by other believers. We are sinners. We are fallen. 
And if we are together for enough time, it's just a matter of time before we offend each other. Right? It's obviously not an excuse for us to be rash, for us to have a, a jerky attitude, right? I can be guilty of that many times. It's not an excuse. But it is an observation that maturity in Christ means rejoicing in Christ and not being easily offended. We see that here in Paul. So with this in mind, let us look at the passage before us today. Paul says that he is ready to honor Jesus whether he keeps living or whether he dies. He's ready to honor Christ. So then we ask ourselves, as we look at this, are we honoring Jesus in our life? If we are honoring Jesus in our life, it's an indicator that therefore we will honor him in our death. We're going to look first at how we can be living our life with a perspective of hope. That's the first point we're going to look at. Keeping a perspective of hope. Then we're going to look at the statement that Paul makes, to live is Christ, to die is gain. How do we honor Jesus in life and death? And then we're going to look at what it looks like for us to live as an opportunity to be fruitful in the gospel. And then in death, an opportunity to show the hope and assurance in Christ. So let's look at the first point, keeping a perspective of hope. That'll be in verse 19. It says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. The context here is that Paul just said he rejoices in the gospel and he's advancing the, the proclamation of the gospel even while he's in jail. So we see here that during trials, during that trial that Paul is living through, Christians are praying for each other. Paul tells us that he is praying for the Philippians and the Philippians are praying for him. Christians pray for each other. That's the first thing we see. Paul being under a lot of pressure in his ministry is being threatened while he's in prison. He has not lost one bit of hope. He has not lost hope. He prays for the Philippians. And he tells us that he knows that they've been praying for him. So then... The question that we ask ourselves is, do we pray for each other? This is a general practice for the Christian life, individually and as a church. Do we pray for each other? just happens to be that today is our first prayer meeting as a church, as the corporate body of Christ. So it's a, I guess it's not a coincidence because we didn't plan it that way. It just happens to be that today... We'll be having our first prayer meeting. And when we do pray, what do we pray for? According to the insight that we've gotten thus far from Paul's prayers, we do get an insight as to the biblical prayers. A lot of times we focus our prayers in personal petitions. And please, no, there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, where else can we go when we're afflicted, when we're in need, when we're in despair, when we're under pressure? Where else can we go? Of course, we can go to Jesus. Of course we can pray for our needs. However, 
Paul makes it clear that that is not the main target of his prayers. Our prayers, we are informed by Paul, should not only be for God to assist us in our situations, but more so for God to be glorified in whatever we're going through. So that us and others can get to know Jesus in a more personal way through those difficult times. So then the golden prayer is for us and others to experience the greatness of God. That will enable us to have the peace of God regardless of the outcome of the situation we're in. So Christians praying for each other. Paul prays for the Philippians. The Philippians pray for Paul. A reminder that we should pray for each other. Secondly, we see that Paul is also saying he's going to be delivered because of the help of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit here is equated with the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So let us take a look at two scriptures that talk about the Holy Spirit, how he is the helper. Like, what is help us? What, what does that look like? What does that mean? John 15, 26 says, Jesus is speaking here, says, But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So then we know that the Holy Spirit testifies about Jesus, convicts us of sin so that we can turn to Jesus and then proclaim Jesus to others. So that's one of the ways in which Paul is being helped, assisted by the Holy Spirit so that he can testify of Jesus. John 14, 16 and 17 says, again, Jesus speaking, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because he neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. So then we see that the Holy Spirit indwells believers so that we can know God and understand his word and can proclaim that truth to others so that they can also come to a knowledge of God. So then we can see how not only the prayers of the saints, but also the Holy Spirit plays a crucial role in Paul being assisted, being helped. Right? And, and when we think about the Holy Spirit helping us, it's not like, well, I got you know, to do my part and the Holy Spirit is going to help me. No, that means total dependence upon God because out of ourselves, we cannot do anything. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that we contribute to the work of God. We obey and we submit to the work of God. So then through prayer of the saints and the help of the Holy Spirit, Paul says that he will be delivered. So then delivered, delivered from what? The word that is used there is often used of salvation, of being ultimately safe, to be wholesome. But we know that Paul is in pretty bad shape, right? He's captured, he's not in any sign of being let go anytime soon. So what does it mean by delivered? Well, he means not losing hope. He hasn't lost hope. From not being ashamed. As we're going to see here, he says he's not ashamed at all. And delivered from being or feeling defeated, spiritually speaking. 
In those cases, Paul says, I will be delivered from these things. He's joyful because he knows he is victorious in Christ. The reason Paul is saying this is because he has realized that nothing that men can do to him will take away what he treasures most. What does Paul treasure most? Paul treasures the love that Jesus has for him. That cannot be taken away from him. And he also treasures the mutual love he has with his fellow Christians in Philippi. So then I can ask myself, what do I treasure most? And can that be taken from me? If what I treasure most can be taken from me, that means that Jesus is not what I treasure most. It reminds us of Jesus telling the crowds, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus draws a contrast of how our desire, our conviction to treasure him should dwarf all of our other relationships so that we could treasure him above all. Jesus is to be valued above all. And Paul knows that no one can take that from him. Not prison, not the beatings, not the humiliation. And in those trials, he says, I am not ashamed. So let us take a look at what that means so that we can understand what to live is Christ and to die is gain, to see what that means in honoring Jesus. So that takes us to point number two. Let's look at verse 20. It says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. So Paul talks about an expectation, about a hope, that he will not be ashamed and he will not be put to shame. I mean, even now, being in jail can be seen as shameful, especially if you're guilty of what they brought you in for. And it was much more so in the time that Paul was writing, especially if you are in there because you're a detractor from the religious culture. Those that were in jail and anyone who visited them were looked at as shameful. And it makes us think, have we ever been ashamed, embarrassed? Or afraid to be identified as a Christian. Because that's what Paul was there. If Paul had continued to be a Pharisee, he would be right in with a, with a cool crowd and he would be safe. I read an article by a person who went on a brief mission trip to the Middle East. And he observed and was pretty surprised how Christians there, shockingly, were not afraid to identify with Christ publicly for them and their families. Obviously, there's a measure of discernment. But by and large, he noted that people there didn't mind identifying and being identified as Christians. And this man was greatly convicted because he thought, back at home in the States, we think we have it bad, but am I as bold as his brothers and sisters are here when they literally risk death 
you know, they tick off the wrong person or the wrong family. Whereas him, or in that case us, I mean, at the very worst, we probably experience cyberbullying, right? Or, or somebody making a harsh comment about us or telling us off. Paul reminds us in Romans 1.16, where he, he talks about being ashamed, or actually not being ashamed. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Right? One thing is to get in a soapbox and proclaim Christ when everything is fine. Right, Paul? In Romans there, we read that and we say, yeah, I've proclaimed that same thing. I'm not ashamed. But now Paul is in prison in the book of Philippians and he's still saying the same thing. I'm not ashamed and I will not be put to shame because of Christ. And then we see the words of Jesus in Luke 9.26 where he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So Christ tells us that if we are ashamed of him, if we deny him, he will also deny us. Because that man, that we really didn't know him. We might have played the game of going to church or thinking that we were in Christ, but we really weren't. And notice there that Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, Jesus is not someone who we could think in our mind and make into an image that we like so that he is acceptable to the world. Jesus is always linked to his words, to what he said in scripture. And that's what people don't like, what scripture says. So instead of being ashamed, Paul says that with full courage, the other word that can be used there is boldness. With boldness, Christ will be honored in his body. That is the boldness of speaking the truth of Christ without holding back, not caring whether he lives or he dies. He will not be ashamed, but rather he will be even more bold in proclaiming Christ. And Paul has resolved that Christ will be honored in his life, in his body, whether he lives or dies. So then the main theme here is seeing that Paul is alive, but whenever the time comes, he is ready to die. It doesn't matter. The fact is, he will not stop preaching the gospel, whether he lives or dies. So then let's take a look at this. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Verse 21, that's what he says. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does that mean? In the last two weeks, two and a half weeks or so, I have had the opportunity to preach at two different funeral services. And trust me, we can see that, especially when it's family, in this case, I was related it was within the family or the extended family. Death is painful, sorrowful. It is very saddening. It is a time that brings despair to many people who are affected by the death of a loved one. And I've seen that up close and personal in the last couple of weeks. Not only that, but 
I was telling my wife that we are at an age where, I guess due to the pandemic, we've seen and known of a lot of close people that have died, but also our family members are getting old. Our grandparents are getting very old. It seems that we're right in that age where, you know, we're, we're getting ready to expect even more death. I mean, we have to be realistic. So when ourselves and our family are getting ready for that, are seeing that, are experiencing that, how can somebody come and say, don't worry about that. To die is gain. That seems like foolishness, doesn't it? From a worldly perspective, that is foolishness. How can you tell me that to die is gain? Seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Well, the explanation, as we see in Scripture, is that to die is gain. Paul is talking about himself. And he's saying that to the Philippians, who can also apply that to themselves because they are in Christ. And in turn, we see that this applies to any Christian and only to Christians. To die is gain. Because then we recognize that the only thing that physical death can do to a child of God is to deliver him of her to the arms of Jesus. That's the only thing that death can do to a believer in Christ. Paul is the one who also wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.8, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Another translation says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That moment when we die, for those that are believers, we'll be present with the Lord. So then, let's make it clear that this promise, the only way that to die is gain makes sense, is that it is a promise only for those that have been adopted into the family of God. To those who God has drawn to himself that have repented of sin, that proclaim Him as Lord, that persevere and show fruit of being sons and daughters of God. There's a false notion, especially in our politically correct culture, that says that if there is such thing as heaven or hell, if there is such thing as God, when anyone dies and believes in that, they're in a better place, quote-unquote. My friends, as hard as it is, my job is to tell you that there is no such thing. The Bible disagrees with that notion in no uncertain terms. The majority of people will not be in a better place. When Paul says to die is gain, it does not apply universally to anybody. It applies only to the children of God. Hebrews 9.27 says, In just... As it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. John 12, 48, Jesus speaking, he says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. We see the words of Jesus. Again, says, have rejected me and my words. Again, Jesus is linked to the word of God. You cannot separate the two. 
Let us not be tempted to fall in the false notion that, well, you know, you believe in Jesus, but don't pay attention to what the Bible says. No. Jesus and his word are tied together. You cannot separate them. And Jesus said, if you reject me and reject my words, you will be judged by those very words. So then to live is Christ, to die is gain. Only applies to the Christian. And it is an opportunity. It is an invitation. It is a crying out to those that don't know Christ to repent, to trust in the perfection of Christ, in his death upon the cross, in his resurrection, so that you too can be partakers of the riches of Christ on the day when you breathe, when you take your last breath on this earth. So now let's look at the next point. That in life and in death, there is an opportunity to spread the gospel. There is an opportunity to honor Jesus both in life and in death. Verse 22 and 23 say as follows. If I am alive in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So Paul is saying, do I stay and live here? He uses the words, if I live in the flesh. Now, let's not confuse terms. Here he doesn't mean like if I live sinning, if I live, you know, as, as a rebel. No, he doesn't mean that. He means if I stay here physically alive rather than die. He says that he's going to have fruitful labor. He's going to be able to propagate the gospel and submit to the Lordship of Christ. Therefore, to live is Christ. He's going to be expanding and proclaiming, as he has been doing, the gospel of Christ. A few verses earlier in Philippians 1 verse 11, it says this, Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So then we're reminded, being a believer, being in Christ necessarily produces fruit in one's life. And it will be evident in the way that we live, and that is going to show the glory of God. Not only in our lives, but to those that observe our lives. And then Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So then the new life in Christ Jesus means that Christ, through his Holy Spirit, now lives inside of us. And therefore, we will not desire to have the same life we once had. It does not mean that, okay, Jesus stuff sounds kind of cool. I, I want my fire insurance so that I can go to heaven, but I want to keep living my life. I'll just sprinkle a little bit of Jesus here and there, and I should be good. No, my friends. If we truly have the Spirit of God in us, we will have new nature, new desires. And when we do sin, we're not going to be okay with it. The Spirit of God would not leave us alone. Until we repent, until we confess to him, until we become accountable to a brother or to a sister. So that we can 
proceed in our life of sanctification. So then this is a great comfort for the believer and a great invitation to those who not yet know Christ. What is that? Galatians says here in 2.20, it says that the Son of God, Jesus, loved you and gave himself for you. God doesn't abandon us and leave us alone to be condemned. He has extended what is necessary for us to know him, for us to trust him, for us to escape his wrath. So that we can say, I am alive, but I am ready to, ready to die. Paul illustrates this and what would be that he desires is to go with Christ. Is that, That's far better. But then he hints that that might even be selfish of him to say, you know what, I'm done and I'll go with Jesus now. Let you guys deal with this on your own. He says his heart pressed between the two. Like, well, what is he going to do? Hard press, or the word is distressed, afflicted, anxious, or grieving over the dilemma. But then in another sense, Paul realizes it's really not up to me. Like, God's will is going to be done. And Jesus would be honored in Paul's death because he would enjoy perfect fellowship with him. Because Paul would be gaining Christ if he dies. In his totality. There's nothing he would be losing. He would be gaining. That's why to die is gain. It's a winning proposition. However, inspired by the Holy Spirit, right in his word, Paul concludes that it is God's will not quite for him to go to be with him yet. But that he's going to be alive for a little while longer for the sake of the Philippian believers. And we'll see that here in the last two verses, 24 through 26. It says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. For your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So God will be granting Paul to stay alive a bit longer for the good of the people, the Philippians. Notice the purpose for the progress in joining the faith. They're growing in the knowledge of God, the proclamation of the gospel, and the joy in their faith. Paul is foretelling that he's going to come to them again. And that they're going to be joyful in that. And more importantly, that as they rejoice, God is going to be glorified. The glory of God is going to be displayed. So Paul will be glorifying Jesus in his body for a while longer by assisting the Philippians, by them rejoicing, by them proclaiming the gospel to live as Christ. And then we saw that he, he also said to die as gain because he will have an infinite win, an infinite gain by going with Christ and enjoying him forever. So then, what can we say then about what we've looked at today? Paul talks about deliverance. Deliverance from what? For us to be sympathetic to Paul, we may think, well, what about when I'm in a trial? What do I pray for? 
Many times we pray to be rid of discomfort, to be rid of emotional or physical pain, if we're honest, so that we can get back on track and do whatever we want and ignore God. I've been guilty of that many times. I highly recommend a book by John Piper, Don't Waste Your Life. It really gives a lot of insight of how not only not to waste your life, but not waste your trials, the times of affliction. So although there's nothing wrong to pray for deliverance from trials, let us ask God to be glorified in our trials so that our will can be aligned to His will. Secondly, we see that Paul is not ashamed of Christ in the position that he's at. Which, by all standards, in the Roman world, that was a pretty humiliating position to be in. Paul says he's not going to be ashamed. And that is a sign that we indeed hold a true belief in Christ and that if we do die, that is going to be gained for us when we are not ashamed of Christ. So then we should be reminded, do I hesitate to identify as a Christian? Do I hesitate to read my Bible in public at a coffee shop or at the park or what have you? Or during my break at work? Am I embarrassed to have a Bible or a Christian book on my desk or where others will see it? Am I ashamed to pray with another Christian in public? Am I ashamed to discernly, politely, yet firmly speak up when a theology or moral matter comes up? In a nutshell, do I hide identifying as a Christian? If we are, we should repent. And we should look to the words of Paul that he is not ashamed. Because that who we identify with is the one who has purchased us, purchased us, purchased us with his blood. And then we learn that Paul is ready to live or die for the glory of Christ. Are we ready to live or die for the glory of Christ? Notice that Paul's attitude it's not a bargain for God to let him live a little bit longer. I mean, I could see myself saying, Lord, please give me, a, give me a couple more years and I'll get my act straight. Paul's not doing that. And the lesson we can see in that point is that instead of saying, God, get me out of this trial and then I'll serve you, is Lord... How can I serve you now in this trial? Or how can I serve you better in this awful, almost too crushing to bear consequence of what is happening to me? How can I serve you now? Know that we do not need to be delivered from a trial in order to serve Jesus. We can serve him and glorify him in our trial, knowing that he will carry us through it. Then also note that Paul is not bargaining with God to let him die either. Right? I, I think I've seen that in the life of people that I have known. Where the despair or the suffering is so much that they're just asking God to take them. 
Like, I just want to die. It is not our place to tell God when to let us live or when to let us die. Paul was submitting to, to the will of God, to the perfect will of God. He was not trying to bargain with him. So Paul is ready and eager to live and let Christ be known or to die and enjoy Jesus forever. His circumstance did not, did not dictate his attitude. He had total peace, which reminds us of what we're going to see in chapter 4, verse 7 of Philippians. It says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Right? Our our danger to fall into despair, into emotional distress, into mental distress. Paul says that there's a peace available that will be hard to understand, that our hearts and our minds are going to rest in Christ. And that's why Paul says, I'm living now, and if I live, I proclaim Christ, and if I die, I gain him forever. Lastly, I'll give you a, a quote from Charles Spurgeon that talks about life and death of a believer and a non-believer. Spurgeon said the following, quote, There is an essential difference between the disease of the godly and the death of the ungodly. Death comes to the ungodly man as a penal infliction, but to the righteous as a summons to his father's palace. To the sinner, it is an execution. To the saint, an undressing from his sins and infirmities. Death to the wicked is the king of terrors. Death to the saint is the end of terrors. The commencement of glory. Unquote. So my friends, my brothers and sisters, let us take comfort knowing that there is hope. There is assurance to those who trust and know God. May we be alive for Christ this very day and therefore ready to die when he desires to call us to himself, which will not be a loss, but will be an infinite gain. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be with us this very day as we consider the things of life and death, as we consider that to put our trust in you, to know you, to love you, to know that we are loved by you is preparation for the day when you call us to yourself, which will be an infinite gain to those who know you. And I pray, Lord, that for those that don't know you, that this would be a calling to them, that your mercy, your goodness would turn them to repentance, to put their faith in the one who has suffered in their, in their place, who has been crucified, who was brutally murdered, and who rose again, victorious over death. I thank you for that hope, Lord. I thank you that your Holy Spirit will convict us of that truth, 
We proclaim that in faith and that you will carry us through. Help us to be witnesses now that we are alive, Lord. That we can say to live as Christ and to die as gain. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.